is a well-known ancient story circulated among the rabbis that on the night before Abraham left his father's household that he went through and he took all the gods that his father had worshipped, these gods of stone and gold and bronze and idol, and he smashed them all and took one little axe and put it in the hand of one god left. His father, of course, in the morning sees the disaster and asks him, what happened here? To which Abraham replies, I think it's pretty clear what happened here. One God slaughtered the rest. And his father says, well, that can't be. They're just stone. They're just gold. And the tradition says that Abraham then turned to his father and said, then why do you worship them? And then he left for the promised land. But even Abraham himself, with all of his faith, still within his own life, had idols that crept in. In Genesis chapter 22, if you could put this verse up for us. Finally, he gets Isaac as a son that he's waited so long for. And then God says to him, take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Your son your only son, whom you love. Abraham had waited so long for this promise to be fulfilled and you can see what, what Isaac has become in Abraham's eyes. He's become the placement of his hope and, and his identity. He's become his son, your only son, whom I love. God doesn't just call him Isaac. He calls him the object of Abraham's affections. So many times this passage is employed by all different atheists and people who argue against the Christian faith to talk about the questionable character of a God who would ask someone to kill their own son. But in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller actually puts this story at the front of the book to talk about the fact that God was actually instructing Abraham and saving him from himself when he realized that this idol had become so important in his life. Abraham, you're going to have to be willing to give this up. And it was in the process of freeing him from that idol that Abraham actually can now receive the promise that was truly given him that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And that this wasn't an act of some fickle God, but rather an incredible act of mercy where God is loving Abraham so much that he causes him this incredible turmoil internally of potentially thinking he might have to sacrifice his own son. Keller goes on in the book to talk about the fact that the hardest moments that we will encounter in life are when we come face to face with the potential of losing our idols and the things that we've put our hope within. In Exodus chapter 20, God has just delivered his people out of Egypt. And I know we always read history backwards when we read these parts of the Bible. But you've got to remember, not a page of Scripture has been written down yet. They've gone into the wilderness. They've seen God deliver them through the ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the pillar of fire, the cloud, the mountains are trembling. I mean, they are watching God move all around them, but they don't have his written word yet. And so I can only imagine the people standing before at the foot of a mountain, Moses going up and trying to find words to come back down and describe who is this that has done all of this for us. We've heard stories about our descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but what kind of response do you give to a God like this? 
That's where these words come in from Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The part of the law that so often gets lost when we read and reread this on Sunday mornings in our churches of this is God's word to us and now how are we to respond as we see all the ways that we've offended and wronged him. But never lose the first line as God begins to speak. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I came to you first. I initiate the movements. I will meet you in your pain. I will come to you wherever you are. I will never leave you alone. My love is so powerful, it will run down any trail. It will go into any pit. There is no sin that you can ever put up. There is no disobedience that is ever so strong that I will not come and find you. I am the Lord your God who delivered you. I was the one who came to you. I initiate all movements and I am the God of grace. And if you want to know how this is God of grace wants to interact with you, then listen to the verses that follow. That's really what verse 1 is saying. It's an invitation to a relationship of grace as God's saying, you want to know who I am. This is what I have done for you. Now, if you want to soar in life, this is how you do it. God is initiating language here in a language of grace. Knowing the ways that he has made us. Knowing that our hearts are incurably religious. We are always searching for something. Something to love. The God who made us is telling us, this is how I wired you. This is who I made you to be. It's why throughout the rest of his book, Uncounterfeit Gods, Keller continues to remind us in this chorus over and over again that idols in our lives are never something that are ever removed. They are only replaced. That if we're not falling in love deeper and deeper with the Lord, we're falling in love with something. Something will capture our gaze. Something will capture our imagination. Something will drive you to wake up in the morning. What are you pursuing? What are you chasing? In all different places in the Psalms, in this book that we've been going through and continue to go through through the course of the semester, I want to read with you through Psalm 115, a reflection on this struggle. Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. House of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord, for he is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to increase. 
both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to humankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The part of this passage that I want to focus on and spend the rest of our time reflecting on together is verses 4 through 8. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Sometime back, I believe in a message I had shared with you, the ancient practice of idol creation. How in all of these different religions in the ancient world, everybody would prop something up in the center of their temple and it would become the object of their worship. It would, it would represent their God. And so an artist would have to get together and work in clay or stone or brass or gold or silver or wood or whatever their fabric or material was, and he'd have to craft something. But you have to make a decision as a worshiper. At what point in time does that object actually become a deity? When does it become a god? And so there's a ceremonial practice that they would go through. As the god gets put in place in the temple, the high priest comes forward and breathes onto the god, and that's the moment. Now it's a god. Interesting, of course, that against this backdrop, Genesis 2 gets written at the same time out in the wilderness. You've seen these ancient religions and how they create their gods. Let me tell you how this god works. He forms his people out of the clay, the ground of the earth, and he breathes life into us. We don't breathe life into things around us and give them life in this world. He breathes into us. The gods do not reflect us. Rather, we reflect the God. I will take the stories of the world and flip them entirely on their head and explain to you that this is who your God is and this is how he operates. He gives you life and he sustains you. He's given you all the parts of you. If you put up the next image for us. Professor um, Sarah Alsom-Wassenaar has agreed with one of her art classes this semester the rest of the time through to take these different psalms and give them to students, and some of you are reflecting on these psalms and taking pictures that reflect what you are seeing in the text. Siri Johnson's providing our images today, and uh, these are the ones, one of the pictures that she had come up with, reflecting on this passage. And you can see the part now, of course, where this is, right? When we engage in the idols of this world, the very things that we're looking for to, to give life to, we, they dull our senses. They steal our humanity from us. When we participate in the things of the world and not the things of God... We become less alive. Our eyesight becomes dimmer. Our senses become desensitized. Our humanity reflects less the God who made us. And we start to lose our sense of self-understanding. Now, it might be easy for us today to reflect with one another and say, well, we don't have those same things, right? We don't make gods out of wood and metal and stone. But show me any college campus in America, and I will show you at least a few young men, maybe women, who have fashioned at least something out of metal. Often they have four wheels underneath of them, and we believe that that item says something about us. We'll become so enslaved to it at times, we'll actually create payment plans in our lives in order to prop this thing up. It's like we're making it go by continually trying to breathe life into something that was designed to be inanimate. 
And we believe that that object says something about us. I have no doubt that every one of us here have already imagined sometime a home that we would have in our lives that we think will make us happy. An object crafted out of wood. It might not be shaped in the form of a little elephant or a god that you would put on a mantelpiece. But we believe that it will say something about us. And we will try to breathe life into this dream. And we will try to make ourselves believe that if we just had that, then we will be more self-actualized. The psalmist reminds us that it's these same things that steal our identity. You don't have to call it a God for it to be a God. It just has to capture your imagination. And one of the things that Keller warns us about in his book over and over and over again is that the definition of an idol in life is actually a good thing become an ultimate thing. So often we'll start off with pursuits. We'll even use great Christian language. One of us, we'll start working out in the gym and we'll talk about the ideas and we'll learn in class that, that what we are called to do is, is to understand that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and we are a reflection of the divine and therefore to put effort into taking care of this body is a good and a righteous and a Christian thing. And it's true. It's good. But there is a line between good and ultimate that we continually flirt with, isn't there? Where it's so easy for a good thing to become an ultimate thing. Where we believe that what our body looks like to the outside world or the amount of time that we spend refining it says something significant about us. It's not wrong to take care of the temple that the Holy Spirit and that God Almighty dwells in. That is a good thing. But be careful between the good and ultimate and how fine that line can become when we believe that those things start to say something significant about us. And maybe another warning that goes along with that is, are we working as hard to develop the part of us that God is looking at the most and not just that man's eyes are upon Are we working as hard to develop our character as we are our appearance? I realized going through the psalm and meditating it on again and again this this week that there are idols still in my own life, things, things that I cling to, things that still I believe say something more about me than they really should. What is said about me that matters most This is what my good, good father has said about me. And he tells me who I am. But idols are such an easy grab of things to put up in our lives that we think, I will be when I graduate to Dort College an accountant or a biologist or careful how we wear these titles. They say something about the good gifts God wants to give in the world through you, but they don't say as much about us as we want to believe or we want others to believe. And these things, too, can become idols for us. They dictate our decisions. They capture our imaginations. And all the while, they steal our identity from us instead of actually giving back to us what we're supposed to receive from them. And so when the good becomes ultimate, it actually begins to have the opposite effect. That that which is giving us life starts to become that which is taking it from us. There are other big ones, and this is just an exemplary list of things that are hit us, I think, particularly at this age. The seduction of love and romance. How many of us have not thought at some point in time, if I was just in a relationship here, or if I just had so-and-so, or if I was just seen 
here or whatever it is that it looks like in your mind or whatever world you have created with this, we've often believed and put so much hope upon that that it will give us what we stand in need of most deeply in our hearts. It's just not true. Here is the truth. If you want to expect more out of love, expect less out of it and more out of God. The greatest thing that you will ever give whoever it is that you end up with in life, for all of you who are called to be married, let me tell you this, the greatest gift that you will ever give that person is not the fit body that you have created. It is not the income that you are figuring out how to provide. It is the person that you become in Christ, and that is, the, that is the gift that he has designed most for you to give to that person. And in a world that's telling us we are all valued by other things, we forget this, and we need to be reminded. I know you know this, but I need to hear it again and again and again. That the greatest gift that I can give my wife repeatedly within our marriage is for me to go away and be with the Lord and be refined more by him and become who he created me to be because who he created me to be is also partially a gift to her. Sometimes we think that this is just going to give us a little more in romance than actually God intended of it. Another one for us, the American dream is still such a big and prevalent idol that it gets held up in American culture, isn't it? We choose ease over obedience. We set out and we map out our lives and we believe that the goal in all of this is that our lives would have less conflict, less trouble, less disease, less financial worries, less problems, less sickness. We are a death-denying culture. We want to live forever. We, want, we, want, we try to organize our lives to be as slick and as easy as possible. But we are not called to ease. We are called to obedience. We are called into a life that Jesus made no mistake about telling us it will be difficult at times. And so often still within the church, we say we don't have a, a prosperity gospel among us, and yet the first thing we do when things go wrong in life is we pray to God and ask him what's going wrong. What did we do wrong? What happened in this relationship back and forth? Do you not love me anymore? And so often we ask the wrong questions and don't seek to be refined even further and further into his likeness. Here's the dangerous thing about the American dream. Is that the character of one's love is determined by the object of one's love. Ben Witherington said that in reflection on this passage. That the character of one's love is determined by the object of one's love. Play with something long enough and we're going to get our hands dirty. I love that image of the gold and silver hands. Touch the things of this world with this and see if it doesn't slowly start creeping into the rest of who we are. We are called to walk such a careful line as stewards of this creation of all the things. Remember that God said it's good and then I made this and it's good. Day four, it's good. Day five, it's good. Day six, it's good. Made people very good. It's not that these things are not supposed to be part of what we do. We are supposed to shape them and unfold them and be invested in them. But when we believe that they start to say more about us than what the Father says about all of us, now we're getting ourselves in trouble. 
Maybe none of these resonate with you. Maybe you're not sure what your idols are or other things. There are other aspects. There's a chapter in the book um, Keller refers to as deep idols, the things inside of us, idols that are systemic even within our culture, uh, that, that are bigger than we even realize because even in the sea of Christianity, we sort of share these together. And by doing so, we give each other permission to pursue that and Christ at the same time. And our deep idols are scary. Here's another thing that Keller says later on in the book. The true God of our hearts is what our thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding our attention. If you want to figure out what your idols are, just be idle. In our boredom, I think we always find out where our brain starts to venture towards. And in those times, I think it, you, that, that shows us, it's sort of the, the indicator and the litmus test of the things that capture our imagination, what we dream about the most. But you are called to a grander vision than that. When Jesus tells the parable of the talents, he's instructing his people to risk big for God. I'm going to give you talents. I'm going to give you eyes. I'm going to give you hands. I'm going to give you a body. I'm going to give you a mind. I'm going to give you passions and unique wirings. I'm going to give you all these things. And what you are called to do is to lay those down, sometimes even in reckless abandon for the Father who created you so we learn how to trust him. When we try to create our own opportunities... We get ourselves into trouble. When Abraham latched too closely onto Isaac as the fulfillment of everything that God has promised, it wasn't in the promise of God anymore. It was in the person of Isaac. And so God needed to free him of that. God needs to free me of idols in my own life too and free you. See, because you were made to dance for him and use all these, everything that you've been given in one giant offering. And when we learn how to lay that down in risk for Christ, we become more alive. You want to live a life well, don't you? You want to experience abundance? This is what we are called to do. The last time I preached this text was a good number of years ago in, in church, and I did it actually in the form of a children's message and invited all the kids up front. And when the message was done, we talked about how we're called to risk and, and, and to figure out what we're supposed to do with these imaginations we've been given. And so what I did at the end of the sermon is I gave each of them one dollar. And I asked them to come back the next week and tell me what they would do with that dollar. What would they risk for Christ? What would they do with it? You are entrusted with things like this. And there are infinitely more gifts in this room than single dollar bills. But I want to tell you what children of God came back. And these are some of the stories. I found these in my notes this week and they blessed me immensely to read back through. What a bunch of five, six, and seven-year-olds did with one dollar. I bought special paper, glitter, markers, and I began to draw pictures. I then baked cookies and went to Crown Point to hand them out to the old people and sing songs to them. That's a dollar well spent. I bought candy for my cousin's dad who was serving in Kuwait, and my mom mailed it to him because their family won't be together for Christmas. I put it in a card for great-grandma to buy toothpaste because her breath always stinks. <laughs> I gave it to 96.5 on the radio so more people could hear the baby Jesus song, a.k.a. Away in a Manger. I sent it to an inmate friend of mine because I write letters back and forth and he's my pen pal and this way he can keep writing to me and I can keep telling him about Jesus. I combined it with $9 of savings with my mom so I could buy um, a butler's gift card. 
before her. That's a 10-time return on the $1, right? You see the parable of the talents happening here? This is my favorite. I used it to buy gas in my parents' car to get to the bank so I could withdraw my entire savings account and give it to an orphanage. To use $1 to act to drive to and access the rest of all of my money so I could simply give it all away. Like are we, these are the ways children are dreaming about how they're going to use everything that they've been given. All of your imagination, your mind, your life, your being, all that you are, these are not meant to be given back to ourselves. These are not meant to be to just indulged in the idol of self, but you were made to just perform and to dance and to sing and to give for God. And in this, and in this only, will we find the life that we are looking for. That's why God warns us against idols. Not because they're actually really, 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 really fun. Because they will really, 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 really kill us. And so God in this act of love and mercy says, don't do it. Please don't do it. I can make you alive more than that can. And that's the invitation of the gospel. I hope you dream well. But all the things you've been called to do. And I hope you risk big. And I hope your life is lived like one giant parable of the talents. Because the more of you I get to know and hear your stories, the opportunities of that given over into God's hands, and not just your own for what it could do in this world, is absolutely inspiring. Father, I pray for this body for this staff, for this faculty, these students, for the gifts and talents that you have laid in here and for the parable that needs to be enacted and lived out day after day. Father, show us in our lives where good things are becoming ultimate things or where they already have. Where we've taken your good creation and try to make it say something about us instead of saying something even greater about you. Lord, teach us full surrender so that you can teach us how to really live. We lay this all down before you and ask that you would convict us in Jesus' name and for his glory as we learn to look like him. Amen. Please rise and receive a parting blessing. Uniquely created and beloved children of God, you have been laden with talents that the world is in need of. And our God in his perfect plan has chosen each one of you to play a remarkable part in that. May no voice in this world ever tell you otherwise. May no doubt in your head ever rob that from you. You are a child of God. Go in his name and do great things. Amen.